Hello, welcome back to the periphery. Uh, today we have another good one, Carl. We've got another good another one. Another great one. This time with one good of at my explaining things. <laughs> with one of my good friends from college, Ella. She is, um, I mean, kind of a legend. I've known Avi for a long time now. Um, we went to UCSD together, as he mentioned. Okay. Prior to me going to UCSD, I was in a unique position because, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, which is not common for a lot of people out of high school and isn't something that I shared with a lot of our peers at UCSD. Um, and I'll just kind of expand upon that a little bit more. Like, I can kind of pinpoint it to a particular moment. It was around like my sophomore year of high school. And I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I was, you know, very happy with growing up in that environment. I thought it was a great space to be. Um, there was a lot of like other, you know, kids in my neighborhood, had a lot of friends in high school, all of that great stuff. But I kind of felt like I wanted to challenge myself to be in an unfamiliar environment and just kind of thinking about the culture of California, the way that it's depicted in media, and also just, you know, talking through my own network, like my parents, friends, kids that were older that had gone out to school in California and described the experience. Like, it seemed like a place where innovation was very much encouraged and beyond just your immediate network. Um, and I was very inspired by that concept because a lot of my peer groups, like from the East coast, like tended to kind of, if they knew what they wanted to do, they would, um, follow a path that was like defined earlier, like either, you know, they would join a family business or they would go to a school where their parents had already gone, or they would follow, um, you know, some sort of trajectory that was done before. And I wanted to kind of branch out beyond that, just because I felt that, you know, based on my experiences up to that point, I did the best in uncertain environments. And so I kind of just thought about like where I would want to be. And I realized it was California for the reasons I mentioned, I just identified with the culture. Um, and in terms of my intellectual curiosities, I was really interested in a lot of the neuroscience research that was coming out of UCSD. Um, and particularly like in the cognitive science space, which is already very interdisciplinary, which gave me a great leg up into the tech space, which is where I am now. Um, but, you know, I started with neuroscience and I was really interested in, from a biological standpoint, like what, what determines, you know, people, like what makes people behave and act the way that they do? Is it something that can be actually scientifically quantified and is neuroscience the right place to look for that? Um, so I would keep up with like a lot of the research. I started doing that around my sophomore year and I In remember- high school? Yeah. Um, oh and I remember like- what, what, Like what? I'm sorry. What made you like- Yeah, this is so unrelatable. <laughs> I know. It's really unrelatable. And it's, I mean, okay. The, the way that I got into like the UCSD neuroscience papers was like kind of relatable. It was from Tumblr. Like I would go on Tumblr and like oh, those wow. would come up on my feed. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like it's not something that I can learn about in school um, because there's no neuroscience classes in high school. Like you, I was taking like biology, just like normal high school classes. Um, and I was like, this is like really specific. And I like it because I can think about the concepts. And even if I don't understand them, cause I'm not gonna lie, like I didn't understand a lot of like the scientific context but I could understand the problem spaces. So for example, if they were looking to represent like, I don't know, um, how do we trace 
like anger from a neuroscience perspective? Like where, what are the origin centers of that sort of emotion? Um, when, how, you know, from a neuron level, like what, what does this, what does the spiking of neurons do? Like when you're angry versus when you're happy and how can we measure that? And I was like, that's just kind of like interesting from a modeling perspective. Um, but I didn't want to go to like med school and I didn't really want to follow the research path. Um, so, you know, I was interested in a lot of the concepts, but I didn't exactly feel like I had a best fit for what to do with those concepts that early on. Um, but I was really lucky to kind of have that exposure to science, like when I was young and be able to do it like independently, as I mentioned, because it kind of like fueled my motivation to like try really hard in school and get the grades needed to get into a UC from out of state. Um, so I think that realizing that at the very least that I wanted to go to California and I wanted to be at UCSD specifically because they had a great research institution for cognitive science allowed me to work really hard in high school so that I could eventually get there. Can you um, list off, I was looking at your LinkedIn and it's like such an interesting combination of undergrad like subjects that you either minored in or can you like list those off? Yeah, so my major is uh, Bachelor of Science in Cognitive Science with a specialization uh, in machine learning and computational neuroscience. And then I minored in math. And I kind of want to start on the point of how much her career mirrors everything we want people to grasp from this like project we have here about her background. She has a very non-intuitive or non-traditional tech background, at least how she describes it. One, you know, she chased the California dream from Maryland to California. She did. Uh, she did. I mean, the way she was talking about California, I actually found quite refreshing. Um, this is very much how I used to think about California before I actually moved to California. Um, California always was this wonderland, not only just because of all of its geographic fe features, the mountains, um, the ocean, the sun, <laughs> and just the complete the package, air, really, you know, the, the people, the skiing in Tahoe <laughs> and the beach at Carmel uh -huh. and just, you know, the whole, the whole complete package. Right. Um, but I feel like. Moving to California, I've clearly also recognized that the state is not perfect and that it has a lot of issues to deal with. And then I feel like the narrative in the media currently is that California might be past its prime. I'm not sure if I'm bought into this narrative, but I was reading today, for example, in the New York Times that I think California for the first time has like lost population or that it's currently losing population, um, which I found quite interesting. Like, so I guess Afi, what I'm wondering is just, do you still believe that um, the California dream, is it still alive and well? Oh, I, you know, I'm going to say it's absolutely alive and well, but I do. He's preparing for his political career. Right uh, no, I'm not. Okay. Your point, your point is well taken though. When I first moved to California back in 2016, um, it took me, I think, three to four years to really start loving, falling in love with California again. I think part of that was me leaving California again. What do you mean again? So you moved, so 2016, you had been there before as well? No, or just, it, it took a while for me to start loving it at all. Or I guess again, because I loved it the first month or two I was there. Okay. And then I was like learning more okay. and more. I was like, this place isn't all that. Like, yeah. you have to be kind of rich, truly enjoy California. I mean, the you housing to, costs are are off the charts. Are those 600 to $800 for a living room in La Jolla. Um, and, but, you know, now, 
I'm in love with this state. And like, yeah. I think what, what partially informed that was after undergrad, I, I spent like six months, eight months on the East Coast again. And I still believe the dream of like kind of being forward looking, uh, trying to do things ahead of the curve and not being, and being generally unafraid of the, uh, of, you know, rebuffing traditions. Yeah. I think yeah. that's still very much alive here. Yeah. So, and, and even within the tech context more specifically, um, you know, do you think California is still the engine of innovation that it that it used to be? I mean, in some ways, of course, it has been distributed more. Um, you see other states starting to develop more of a tech scene, which is a good thing, right? Like we want innovation to not just be located at one hub. We want it to spread out to the periphery, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just wondering, like, does California still have that front runner um, kind of carrying everyone on its shoulders <laughs> status in the tech scene where every everything comes out of California. You might have some people that disagree with that historical analysis, but at least when it comes to yeah. the internet, right? Well I think I think that's right. I think one it's I think we need to get clear what we mean by the periphery. Um, of course, I think I agree. It's great that we have more than one hub, but also I think part of like, no, I don't think we're quite as ahead of it as we used to be. We were having this conversation with August last night about how it was a, a recount on Apple uh, and kind of how the history of how Apple became Apple today, especially with the transition to Tim Cook. And, you know, my very rudimentary history understanding of Silicon Valley is that the periphery was genuinely involved um designers were treated like ceos uh flower children were <laughs> kind of throwing things against the wall and seeing if it stuck and i think that spirit's still kind of here but i find that the the value of being a bit eccentric and idiosyncratic mm -hmm. it's become and august gonna hate that i say this much more like wall street where it's just more traditional I uh, think it's about profit maximization as opposed to world build, building in a way that yeah that I think we've kind of lost a. I mean, these companies have all become just very large, so huge, right? Yeah. I would. I mean, I disagree that there's no eccentricity whatsoever. I mean, I, didn't say that. I think just if you're thinking about like NFTs and like bored apes, that seems kind <laughs> of eccentric to but me. But that feels more LA. Yeah, I mean, maybe. And I don't even know where most of the Web3 is is happening. I don't know if Silicon Valley is dominant there as well. But no, I mean, your your point is well taken. And we'll see, I guess, as California matures, as Silicon Valley matures, can it both kind of have these massive behemoth corporations um, that are dominant and maybe even maintain their dominance, yeah. but also keep kind of providing an environment where upstart, upstarts can also arise and maybe unseat one of these behemoths. I mean, we were talking yesterday about which one of the companies we would, <laughs> we would short. I feel like we shouldn't <laughs> we, disclose this. We shouldn't, they're they're uh, going to be our clients. Yeah, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about this uh, on the podcast. But, you know, like, will is it is it still possible to unseat one of these um, big monopolies? But we don't even have to, you know, this is just a thought. Especially, really. I mean, environment, especially, you know, with a, with an environment that's crumbling around us and on fire every every year. Yeah. Um, and we won't solve this today, but it's something no, worth thinking think about. Think about it. Sit on it. Ruminate. Uh, but to the point of, like, who is a periphery? Ella's story is exactly that. She was talking about how she had a very humanities background. She was uh, she wasn't above average at math. Again, how I got there, it's it, again, it's not 
like necessarily linear. Like for example, when I was in high school and I, as I was just describing, I was into like neuroscience and like cognitive science research because I found it super interesting to try to relate that back to my own behavior and behaviors of others. Um, I didn't like math at all at that time. And I wasn't even good at it. Like I was not like an above average student by any regard in high school. Like I took AP classes in the humanities, but I never took any AP STEM classes. And I was like, probably, um, I did not think that I could do it for one. So it wasn't like, it was a confidence thing. And it was also like, just not what I was interested in because when you're at, like when you're at a high school level, you're learning the foundations, right? You're not learning about the applications of things. And I wasn't, I didn't see the value, I guess, that young in those foundations. And I wish I did, that I did, because when I went to UCSD, as you know, Afi, like I definitely struggled through those like engineering focused. It didn't look like classes. a struggle from over here to me. I mean, you uh, worked hard struggle. though. You did work <laughs> <I> hard. Worked, <laughs> yeah, I had to work really hard, but part of it was because I didn't like set up the strongest foundations in math because I didn't think it was like necessarily something that I would be able to even do when I was in high school. So I was like, I'm super interested in all of these modeling concepts, but I'm scared of math. And I got to UCSD and I was taking the cognitive science classes um, and, you know, machine learning would come up and there was, there's a whole component. So you can think of cognitive science as like a hybrid field that pulls from philosophy, linguistics, computer science, like mathematics and neuroscience, very interdisciplinary. So even in your freshman year classes, you're learning bits and pieces of all of those things and how they fit together to study cognition. Um, And so machine learning would come up and I did not immediately think that that was going to be what I would ultimately do. It actually took a lot of encouragement from my classmates who kind of gave me um, resources. And one huge book that was very motivational to me my freshman year was On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. And that book basically- I think August, our co-host is not here. He mentions that book quite often. It's a great book. And it basically walks that bridge between neuroscience and computer science and how you can use math as a means to represent reality rather than, uh, you know, just something that you can do, which to that point was like all I thought of math. I was like, okay, yeah, like you do an equation, you get an answer. Great. You turn that in, you get a grade, it's done. But my freshman year of college was the first time I started to realize like the actual applications of math is a tool to represent components of reality, which is aligned with all of those other fields in cognitive science that I had mentioned. What is linguistics? It's using language as a tool to represent uh, our communication of components of reality. Neuroscience is studying like the biological um, brain that, you know, constructs our reality to a certain extent. Like computer science is pretty similar to math in that it's like a technical representation of a problem space. And where does the problem space come from? It's like grounded in reality to a certain extent. So like when I thought about math, just as a way to kind of like conceptualize certain components of reality and relate it back to my experience and my friend's experience, I wasn't scared of it anymore. I was little, but I still thought it would be worth it to learn. And that kind of intellectual curiosity like motivated me through all of the like academic failures and struggles because there was definitely plenty of them. And a lot of that had to do with the confidence that she felt. Uh, which I think, you know, t- time and again, I feel like this point comes up with us in particular, but also some of the guests that we've had on, especially those with more Mars science backgrounds in this tech sphere, who are kind of doing cutting edge work. I mean, you know, you heard Ellen's resume. She's doing cutting edge stuff. She is, and it's that, <laughs> that 
breadth of knowledge that's really contributing to that. It's not how good a calculus she was. It had nothing to do with really how good a calculus she was. Speaking of innovating in tech, she also told us why we wouldn't have it in general AI. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was describing to us how there have been different paradigms, maybe is the right word, in machine learning and in um, AI development overall. You know, she was telling us very interesting things about symbolic AI that I'd never really, um, you know, ruminated on in yeah. detail. It seems like for all intents and purposes, we're trying to get to her toward a generalized AI system. Um, and I kind of want to ask about the tension and accomplishing that while we still have a really kind of rudimentary understanding of human cognition as a general matter. So we're trying to create something that we don't really quite even understand how it operates. <laughs> I think that's a huge blocker, to be honest. Like, I, it's hard for me to conceive how we can represent something that we don't yet understand. I don't think intelligence is going to be like spontaneously created in an AI system. To me, that seems um, pretty improbable. Usually we have to, like as engineers, define motivations and intents to any system so that it actually produces the output that we require. I don't, I mean, if you think of intelligence as just like a way to solve a problem, like, a, like you know, how a map can get you from point A to point B, um, if intelligence is just, you know, solving a, solving a predetermined problem, you have to actually prescribe like motivations and intents to get it there maybe, but machines aren't just like spontaneously coming up with those. So I think that- Even in like, deep, need... even like in, within deep learning systems where they kind of like, what's within, happening in, in those systems? Within deep learning systems, they're spontaneously like creating new weights, which allows it to like, reach convergence is the technical term, but essentially all that means is that um, it's looking at the training data and like understanding how a given output was created. And over time, it learns how to like optimize for that output. And the way that it gets there, the, the mathematical like path that it takes to get there um, is not always easy to trace, but it's not like like it's not solving a problem that was outside of the domain of the training data, if that makes sense. Mm. So um, there's so many components just from a cognitive science perspective to like people and so many motivations and desires that kind of drive us and allow us to make decisions. And I just don't think that intelligent systems like require all of them. For example, a lot of motivations for people like come from the fact that we are biological beings and we, you know, evolved. And in order to evolve, you need to be competitive as an organism. Um, a lot of your drives go back to like the need for shelter, hunger, um, you know, water. And then as we become more advanced as a society, we have like egotistical drives and we're motivated by other people and our peers and uh, culture and cultural norms and values. And I kind of like beg the question, like, is it necessary for an intelligent AI system to have any of those things. I don't really necessarily think so. I think that AI will be most useful to people um, if we can allow it to, you know, like I just I just don't think that it needs to have any of those motivations. Like the motivations should be predetermined before, you know, you train it or before you create it or release it. Um, and I think it would be very difficult to like accidentally stumble upon a system that can solve like 
multiple things or can understand any of those things that we don't even yet understand ourselves. I think there's several hurdles. One of them is like for any learning problem, you need training data. And right now those training data sets are also domain specific, which makes sense because usually you have a modeling problem and then you go out and either grab the data if it's open source and already exists somewhere on the internet, or you have to create it yourself. Um, so like, where would you even start, right? Like if you have the task of creating a data set to model like non, a non-domain specific task, like let's say, I don't know, like if you look at a person, like we talk and we also, um, you know, think and like we're doing all of these other sub processes, like we, there's, we don't have data for that right now. So it's very hard to optimize an algorithm to do multiple tasks at once. Another thing would be compute. Um, it's already very expensive to train machine learning algorithms to one task. So that would just scale up as you start to add um, more like larger data sets, which can capture more like facets of a problem. Um, it would just cost more to train. And that's assuming that we're going to solve that problem with the existing tech stack that we currently use um, with using machine learning algorithms. There's also other fields of AI, which I think are really interesting and they're not getting a lot of hype and press right now. Um, like symbolic AI is one. So that was very popular, like actually back in like the 70s and 80s. And it differs from machine learning in that you're not using very large data sets and optimizing them over one problem space. You're actually trying to define the problem space very concretely before training over it. So a great example of that would be um, like, let's say you want to create a language system, you would map out all of the components of language. So there would be things like syntax, semantics, and intention. And you would try to represent all of those components like concretely by like literally like tagging the language and creating a system that starts to um, make decisions that are predetermined over those tags. It's kind of similar, you can think like of to how you would like learn about language, right? Like you would learn what a verb is and what a noun is and how you put them together, like little like puzzle pieces when you're first in English class. Um, so that that methodology was really popular back in the day and it had a lot of hype, just like machine learning currently does. Um, but obviously like it never created like UAI, UAI or AGI. So it was kind of abandoned. And now there's been really amazing uh, results with machine learning. So that's what's currently very popular. found very interesting was just um, this idea of like domain specific AI um, in the in the popular imagination where we often think of think of maybe how in 2001 a space odyssey or the one in ex machina <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or each, her. each one each one very her. much do you remember her her I didn't see that I know oh, I know what you're talking Carl, about you would love her is it basically like an Alexa that becomes yes. a human? Okay. We should watch her together. Okay, we will watch her and give us uh, give you guys our review sometime soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, just in the popular media, it's often portrayed as this kind of human-like intelligence that very much acts like a human being and sometimes even has emotions like a human being. But what she was talking about is 
domain specificity, that today's artificial intelligence is not so much like a human being who is um, who can do a lot of different things. It's more that AI is domain specific and it can do one particular task, but it can do that much better than we do currently. I think the most interesting part about that was how she was talking about how it doesn't even really matter that we get that far. Mm-hmm. You know, the effects and the outcomes and the the uh, the fundamental shifts that we can have in our society and how we all interact with each other, it's already there. And even <clears throat> she went even further to say how it's probably good that there will always be human somewhere in the loop mm-hmm. of these AI systems dictating, you know, the goals yeah. and, you know, desires essentially of what these domains are actually, what the actual domain is. Yeah. I mean, that part became, became strangely philosophical where, you know, we were talking about, oh, humans are biological beings and yeah. they have these, <laughs> they have these drives and desires. She did and the cognitive what, science. And that's what kind of drives them as individuals. And then we, overlay on top of those biological desires and intelligence and now suddenly you know you have many more tools at your disposal Mm -hmm. to pursue those biological desires Um, and that's kind of how human intelligence maybe evolves i'm not sure but can also run rampant but with an ai it seems to me that what she was saying is that those biological desires are not it built in like they are in this right. kind of intelligent machine that is a human being and, like, and how so could you? we would have a bit we would have an easier time of defining the desires on behalf of or the objectives on behalf of the artificial intelligence yeah this kind of reminds me of a conversation augs and i had uh about like just the enabling aspect of these these systems uh about august was like how cool would it be if you had an ai that could like make the movie the actors for you to move like basically ai is the movie you write the, the screenplay and i hated it wait you <laughs> so like all you do is write the screenplay and you have an ai that can so advance that makes the entire you movie. know you can cast but at that point the ai can write the screenplay too well you can we just did. be like write me a movie about <laughs> blah 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 well i hated it i was like i kind of think like part of the like and I'm not Wait, a director. You, you hated the idea, or is there all something that already exists like that? It probably already exists in some respects, but all of it, like okay. all of it, I was like, I want, I want the human interaction. I want. Yeah. I feel like that's part of the magic and like the best movies. The yeah. actors had no small part yeah. in making that to life. But he, then he was like, "Well, the AI would just do exactly that and no, more." Yeah, I was like, "It's a very obvious take." <laughs> but I mean, I think ultimately he's probably right. As I, it's it's difficult. I mean. No, I, do, right. I do think there's, I mean, there is room for AI to do unexpected and even beautiful things. I don't know how much you were following the, no. um, it was, uh, what was it again? It was either the one that played chess against Gary Kasparov or the one that played Go, Alpha Go against the South Korean Go champion. One of those two, um, I think it was the Go system that played against this uh, South Korean champion it made moves that like no one had ever seen before and that weren't weren't were not only unintuitive and surprising but you know th- so there was something almost kind of creative about it and people who are in the know about go almost said that this was like a godlike kind of move and and so wow. i think there is that potential for artificial intelligence 
to do these kind of almost creative, artistic, unexpected things. Kind of like within its own domains. I think, I mean, that's... Even within the human domain, just because it rearranges... um, or it, it, it thinks of things that we've never thought of. With literally the, the benefit of having every thought possible within its system. Yeah. Which, I mean, kind of brings brings us to, like, another thing we were talking about with Ella, um, kind of the guiding principles for AI governance. Oh, yeah. I think that there needs to be, like, better protocol around the deployment to production of machine learning systems because um, I haven't really seen there being much beyond just retroactively, like, either notifying the consumer that this was an output from an AI system. Um, so so what, right? Like my question would be, okay, great. Like you notify them, um, but how can they actually be informed about what that means and how that could affect them? And even prior to things going to the consumer, what can an engineer do to ensure that their model that they're going to release is going to be robust enough to handle, um, you know, a data drift? For one, like there is a responsibility of maintaining training data sets so that you're capturing um, changes as they happen in the world specific to the model that you or specific to the problem that you are modeling. Um, and I also just think there needs to be better and more clear accountability in terms of who's responsible for um, setting up, I guess, any like opportunities to catch outputs that are not not congruent with the way that we want to um, make decisions in the real world. I think it's it's a hard problem because it's very hard to attribute blame. Like you want to assume that no one has ill intent. And a lot of times they probably don't. It's just that some of the like social and societal constructs that we're operating under are very, very hard to break down and put into just like a column of a trading data set. You know what I mean? So we need to find ways to kind of either represent those things in the model itself so that the model can learn to, I guess, like ethically optimize them. And there's like research that has come out of Google where they've actually tried to do this. Like they've tried to capture um, some of the, first of all, they've looked at models that are creating outputs that could be harmful to particular groups of society um, without intending to be just because of the nuance of, you know, as I had mentioned, like society and culture and like things that are not captured in the training data itself. Um, kind of like like a weight to just realign the model to what human decision making would be um, more, more closer to what human decision making would be, given that the person is informed about all of these um, other factors. That's really hard to do, though, and it's really hard to scale. And it, I it's not standard practice right now. So until I don't think we can wait around for it to be standard practice to be able to like represent such complex like cultural phenom- phenomenons in training data. I think rather we just need to start with having um, more concrete measures that can be implemented right away, such as reviewing outputs um, over like diverse like input spaces before releasing anything to production. So what that would mean is like, get, you know, you should know where your model's going to go. Like who's going to be interacting with the outputs? Like, can you get potential like input data that you can test to like look at production outputs um, and have a thorough like testing process? And then also keep track of who was collecting the training data and when and where did it come from? Um, And then who designs the model and who's responsible for maintaining it? So I guess just kind of surfacing all of those things, I think is a step in the right direction at least. Um, because I don't think that, I think there's a lot of value that we can get from machine learning systems. And I think it's very unfortunate um, that it does come down to 
like a modeling problem that we can't represent all of the possible confounding variables. But I think that that's not something that should deter us from leveraging machine learning solutions right now. I think we just need to have more transparency around how they come to be and like better, you know, processes in place for improving them when something goes wrong. Because it will, of course. We have an episode forthcoming. We don't know when. Uh, but one of our one of the, one of you all on the periphery uh, probed us to consider the intellectual property implications of AI systems that do exactly this type of work. Um, you know, where does the copyright start and stop with an AI system that's making the art? Yeah, it's weird because it's going to infringe copyright to make its own work. There are going to be so many different <laughs> IP issues in that, and and also and we didn't even get that far with with Ella. We, we were kind of yeah, talking about yeah. we were like. 10, we're, we're still like at 2022 AI that we're kind of thinking about with the governing principles that she put forward. even, I mean, think about, actually, yeah, IP is going to be implicated in so many different ways, um, which makes me even happier that Afi and I, you know, we paid so much attention in, in <laughs> intellectual property. Oh, we're not going to call me out right now. <laughs> okay, maybe let's no, cut no, that. No, I don't care. But, I, don't um, give a, I don't care. I said we. I said you we. You did say we. I said we. I out of myself. Um, it's more about Dave. Dave. Dave's one who knows. He's taken patents classes. Dave is the professional, on this, the professional on this one. Um, but either way, you know, even with like deep fakes, what uh, even Barack Obama was talking about this, like not about the IP d dimension, but back when we had, about dinner, back when we had dinner with him last week, right? <laughs> After the talk, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the periphery ex Barack Obama, oh, yeah, uh, annual dinner. It's got to go through clearances, Memorial so it might take a few dinner. years for it to get out, but yeah. like, trust me, we did that, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, with deep fakes, like your person is being used and made to say things that you've never said and often probably quite defamatory things mm -hmm. that's going to be an entire branch of law i think and that'll be really interesting um but no coming back to laws that maybe are more important or more relevant to this particular episode are as ella was talking about asimov's three laws of robotics there is kind of um a tension between what is popular like media and what is very entertaining for us to kind of consume as you know consumers and the actual reality of the technical engineering problem of AI. However, I look to science fiction a lot for guidelines and principles for, you know, like from an ethical standpoint. And um, I think that's useful. So in the same way that I would go back and like read papers from the 70s and 80s from like the symbolic and theoretical space that never became popularized, because I think it's super interesting how they draw on, um, you know, just Create, they simplify very complex concepts um, in order to clearly define them, which machine learning does not do, right? So in machine learning, you create the training data and you create the algorithm that operates over that training data, and then you get the expected output because the training data contained um, hints at how to get there, essentially. However, in the symbolic space, it was much more like they didn't have that training data that had the expected output. They're actually going in and modeling the world. Um, and I actually like have an example of it. It's of a science of like uh, science fiction laws that I think could apply really well to the creation of ethical like AI systems. And it's by like a book. It's from a book by Isaac Asimov. Oh um, yeah. He's a science fiction writer. He. This is not really related to machine intelligence or AI, but it really stuck with me because I think the theory of the principles are like so beautifully straightforward and could apply super well. 
So it's a safety protocol for robotics. And the first protocol would be that a robot can't injure a human being through, um, through inaction or allow a human being to come to any harm. So the first protocol would essentially ensure that people can be safe in interactions with that robot. The second would be that a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except where these orders would conflict with the first law. So that kind of accommodates for the fact that we can't necessarily trust humans' intentions and human intelligence because there's a lot of you know, ill motive among society where people harm other people. So that would prevent a human from potentially being able to use a robot or a machine intelligence system to harm another. And then the third would be about the um, robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second law. And I also think that that's a really interesting point as well because um, it would prevent you know, machines from being easily like manipulated in a way. And I think that that's kind of important. So um, I was just kind of, this comes from another book by Jeff Hawkins where he pointed that out as, you know, these are principles that were created in a, in a you know, creative space for entertainment through science fiction. However, they're kind of like good engineering guidelines in a way as well. Um, so that kind of goes back to like machine learning and AI as a field being super interdis interdisciplinary and also reflecting kind of a on these process, laws. I feel like the space um, is really open to input from science fiction writers, philosophers. For any me, of that. intuitively, these laws make a lot of sense. You know, a robot may not injure a human being. Um, must obey orders except for, you know, when that would result in injuring a human being and the third being protecting its own existence unless it conflicts with the first or the second law. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that that can be like a basic guiding, um, you know, like a guiding a framework. framework. But when applying these principles, like how useful are they actually? I mean, as someone who's worked at the Center for AI and Digital Policy, so I know a thing or two about these AI policies. They are incredibly useful. Like to, I think they're useful for two reasons. Uh, one, they kind of set the stage, maybe just for one main reason, but they really help get to the core of what's the problem and what we're concerned yeah. about. You know, these are only three principles, but you know, thinking of the Council of Europe, they articulated. 10 different principles uh, that I really touched on about accountability, about maintenance, about, and, and it started very vague and high level. Just like, what do we, what are we actually concerned about here? And how do we start to build the contours in that? And so when starting with those values, you know, now we're seeing an AI act that might be coming out of the European Union's AI act. And they have some specifics. They have, uh, you know, What's a high-risk system? What's a low-risk system? What does that actually mean? How do we build an accountability? How do we build in transparency? How do we uh, build in privacy in these things? Even with the Council of Europe, their AI Act, that's, that's more, more than likely we'll, we'll be a party to, yeah. uh, United States and observer country. You know, they started very abstract. It was like yeah. human in the loop at all times. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> at what point right. does that attach? Right. Uh, and I think these like I think having the values at the outset is everything. I mean, when we yeah. talked to Jamil Jaffer, and he was talking about the First Amendment, and he yeah. kind of took a step yeah. back. He was like, "Where do we start?" He was like, "What is the First Amendment actually getting at?" Yeah. And then he was able to work backward from there. He was like, "Okay, what? Do we, like, let's take a step back. These platforms are kind of doing something in his view different. 
with yeah. speech than it used to. Yeah. So what does speech supposed to protect? And then from there, how do we get these platforms to conform with that as much as we can? Yeah, and I mean, in pure length or word count, I think these laws are probably around the same length as the First Amendment. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. Um, and it's a bunch of scholars. And I mean, I'd have to go back and take another look, but I, but that seems correct. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I totally agree with, with the idea that you have to start somewhere and that these, um, these law, and also I feel like these laws, these would actually be like pretty strict if you applied these un in an uncompromising way. Like if you think, like, it seems to me that under these laws, no autonomous weapon would ever be allowed. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And, and I think so, that's kind of the goal of some of these laws. Yeah. But for me, I guess what I wonder about is, you know, how viable is it? Because you would need international agreement mm -hmm. to have some kind of moratorium on these weapons. And that would have to be agreed upon between nations that are often quite hostile to one another, especially right now. Um, I mean, I think how I mean, of course, we we are able to we've had we've had nuclear um, weapons agreements in the past. Um, those have never been completely watertight. But well, I think it's just difficult. I mean, know, with, so. with autonomous weapons, I think the case is even easier to make than with nuclear weapons. I mean, autonomous weapons, if you have a fleet of indiscriminately murderous, you know, bots or drones yeah. that make a mistake and you can't turn that off, it doesn't matter who you're going for. You might end up killing yourself. But uh, I think even actually... And, I mean, that's kind of the argument that's kind of being furthered with uh, people looking for these bans of moratoriums or at least, you know, autonomous yeah. weapons. They're not even saying you can't use weapons that act automatically in some respect, but there needs to be an off switch. There needs to be a human in the loop at all times to make yeah. these decisions to correct for when they go wrong. I do think under these laws, though, even that would not be enough because, like, under Asimov's principles. But if, because if you say, must obey orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Yeah. So like, even when there is an off switch or even when the human is main kind of in control, like, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how you define a robot. And also, it also depends on how, I mean, one, he's not going to be the one's record policy, but yeah. two, it also depends on what you mean by robot and also artificial intelligence. If yeah. so, you know, that's, so the, yeah. to your point of like yeah. the generalities, it's yeah. really hard to nail down. No, and I mean I'd have to. This is from iRobot. The the rules were introduced in his 1942 short story Runaround, and then also collected in oh that was in a collection called iRobot. Okay, um, okay. So I'm glad we talked about those. <laughs> um, what else is there? Anything else we need to kind of close with i think yeah i think we did it carl i mean it raised a lot of very interesting questions i think it really and, did. um and ella was was a very helpful guest in just being in in explaining these things in very clear terms yeah. um so i thought that that was very helpful one more thing before we go um we are at the periphery podcast basically everywhere you can email us at the periphery podcast at gmail.com we also have a Patreon. Um, your support 
would mean everything. And this summer, we will start releasing this season's full interviews without all of our shenanigans of the video versions on our on our Patreon. So, if you're interested in that and you want you want that type of content, we got you covered there. And we will talk to you. Oh my God! Talk to you. We'll talk to you next week after Afi Burks. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week.